there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Canada's Parliament gave a standing ovation to a Nazi. The Canadian state is sponsoring an ongoing genocide. Members of the targeted group in Canada are being silenced and fired. Provincial governments are introducing explicitly anti-communist school curricula. It's here. This tweet really caught my attention. It was a tweet by Propagandolf, who everyone should follow because one of the most entertaining accounts on on Twitter, or should I say X? No, I'm saying Twitter. Um, and it stuck with me. I've been thinking of, I mean, this tweet was November 29th, so it's not recent. Well, I get, you know, how things move. You've but been chewing it, on it. it. It stuck with me because, yeah, the it's here, we're talking fascism. And I would argue it's been here for a while, bubbling beneath the surface. It's just getting a lot more comfortable being honest about what it is. The rise of fascism should be of genuine, urgent concern to all of us because it is rising a hell of a lot faster than any counter movement to it is rising. Fascism, I would argue, is the dominant Western ideology at the moment. And we have some serious work to do when it comes to dismantling it. And so we're going to talk about that. See, a lot of people would mock you for that. You know, I'm on, obviously, we're going to have a discussion here. We're going to lay out an argument to demonstrate what Santiago just said and what you heard in that tweet, because I wholeheartedly agree with you. But you can't tweet about fascism. And I'm sure if you read the comments or the replies there to Propagandolf, there's going to be a lot of folks seemingly on your side telling you not to just throw that term around there. You know, that we can't minimalize actual fascism by talking about Stephen Lecce in the sense of being a fascist, that it waters down the term, that it's not helpful. You know, a political scientist would perhaps suggest there's certain checkboxes that need to be done, like certain legislations that need to be passed in order to declare a, a regime fascist. But, you know, I think a large part of our argument will be centered around like that is too late. Once it gets to that point where, you know, the courts have been legislated and you're already seeing police being used to crack down on dissent and those who oppose, you know, what the head honcho says, what Trudeau's position, anything counter to Trudeau's position right now is being sold as un-Canadian, a danger, a threat to society even. And that's absolutely essential in fascism. So you can't, you can't just wait until it's like got a swastika band on its arm and it closely resembles what your textbook showed you fascism was, right? There's, there's, 
there's and there's so many more definitions. Like I think I think we got to open up on that. There's one that I want to talk about specifically. And it's not a fascism that has a swastika. It's a fascism that has a cross. And it's a fascism that has been growing for a while. And I'm going to quote the words of a very interesting individual for a variety of reasons. Frank Zappa, back in 1986, had this to say. The biggest threat to America today is not communism. It's moving America towards a fascist theocracy. And everything that has happened during the Reagan administration is steering us right down that pipeline. When you have a government that prefers a certain moral code derived from a certain religion and that moral code turns into legislation to suit one certain religious point of view. And if that code happens to be very, very right wing, almost towards Attila the Hun. What do you call that? Fascism. It's fascism. And we need to talk about this because when you look at the biggest figures on the right right now, it's textbook theocratic fascism. Whether or not we're talking about Jordan Peterson when he talks about Judeo-Christian values or we talk about Ben Shapiro who does the same. When we see the moral panics that have been attacking anything to do with the LGBTQ movement or with various uh, rights for various minorities that has been growing in the past few years. It's textbook theocratic fascism. Or, to talk about what's happening today, Zionism is textbook theocratic fascism. It's The two words are essentially interchangeable to me. It is exactly the perfect example of theocratic fascism. And it's happening right now and we can see who is aligned with it and you know there's an old there's an old kind of saying about how liberals will always align themselves with fascism over actually embracing anything remotely truly progressive socialist marxist whatever word you want to use well we can see our federal government being liberal they have no problem with embracing the fascism that is currently happening in Israel. They have no problem with applauding a fascist in an OG fascist, you know, like a actual swastika fascist. Um, There's no issue there, whether or not it's through putting up memorials, honoring those fascists, welcoming them into parliament, or having one of them sit as your deputy prime minister. Putting them into government in Latin America, in South America? Yeah, whether or not it's overthrowing democratically elected indigenous leaders to install fascist puppets, whether or not it's supporting fascists in Brazil, whether or not it's supporting fascists in Chile, or so-called libertarians in Argentina who have more in common with fascists than they do with anything even remotely um, libertarian. Or right here at home. Because the fascism is happening both internationally in our foreign policy, but it's also happening domestically. It's happening on so many levels that we can't quite see it. And it's not always going to be so obvious as having a swastika, having some simple, or being ultra-white nationalist. I mean, there's 
we can identify certain elements as obviously fascist. But the Liberal Party, they're not going to be as easily to identify. No, they do a really good job, especially domestically. Like if you look at their foreign policy with any kind of lens, it becomes obvious, right? We are not the good guys and we absolutely support far right regimes, right? Fascist regimes. regimes. But here in Canada, the liberals do a particularly good job in not even allowing themselves to frame that in the religious sense because the conservatives are less, less skilled at doing that. In fact, oh, you can probably hear yelling on my end. In fact, like... There's one interview where Maxim Bernier is interviewing one of the PPC candidates and she tells him to his face, you know, you're fulfilling an ancient biblical prophecy, basically frames him as like the second coming of Jesus. And he replies, like, I'm doing my best, playing into that trope of having the moral high ground right, based in family values. I think conservatives here in Canada, they use the family values framing narrative, but really we know what that means. That means Christian values. And we see it, especially now that they pop their head up on the LGBTQ issues and other things that are real dog whistles for white Christian nationalists. And you talk about like liberals historically cozying up to fascists. Organized religion is another Example, I was reading an article and the author was careful to say, you know, inherently religion isn't fascist, but historically they've played a huge role in establishing fascist regimes. And I would argue that inherently they are mostly fascist. They do require... Uh, sticking to an ethics, a moral code, that moral code provides you with some sort of superiority over those not following that code. It really normalizes an authoritarian regime, right? An unquestionable regime that then everyone kind of fits into that image or they do not. And the alternative is, is death and purgatory and all that awful stuff. So, it, you know, they always walk side by side. So in Canada, I think that's why it's harder for people to identify this as fascism, because it doesn't traditionally resemble, you know, the really hyper-religious fascist mm -hmm. or nationalist regimes that we've seen. What is fascism? <laughs> it depends on it, who you ask. It does, because it's inherently an incoherent ideology that's not very well laid out at all. And that's part of the problem. And I, I, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the fact that it's very like we as a society were raised on the idea that fascism is bad. You know, you ask people, is fascism bad? And I'd say 19 out of 20, <laughs> probably more than 19 out of 20 times. I don't know. I, I, the vast 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 majority of the times you're going to get the answer fascism is bad because that that's what we were raised if you with. use the f word fascism is inherent like we associate fascism with the ultimate evil just like we associate the term genocide with the ultimate evil so when leftists who are the historical enemies of fascism uh, when we use the word fascism it gets laughed off easily because we are we're we're 
what's the word? We're invoking the ultimate evil. We're like invoking the yeah, the what what we identify as being the ultimate evil. So it gets laughed off, it gets dismissed. And so sometimes like <laughs> it's both useful and not useful because what what's happening is fascism and we can define the ways that it is fascism, but fascism is an ideology that evolves just like all ideologies evolve. The ideologies of the early 20th century are not the ideologies of today. They may share the same words, but they are very very different things. Tactics change. Ways of going about things change. And fascism has become very, very good at disguising itself. And this is something that was predicted. And a very good example of something that everybody read in school, or at least I hope that everybody read in school, 1984, George Orwell, famous socialist, he was talking about the way that fascism would evolve, that it would change, that it would be harder to identify. And so many of his predictions have played out in modern society and it has become very difficult because if it doesn't have that swastika if it doesn't have that easily to identifiable thing we don't know what's going on i know i wonder if people knowing the nazis look back and think that hitler and that ideology just appeared kind of overnight and were installed undemocratically, you know, under the cloak of night. And it it wasn't. It was slowly accepted. It, it became part of the ideology. And like to my earlier comments and then yours, it's not inherently that it is religious, but that I think it was Chris Hedges said what it does is it it's catering to the emotional needs of the moment. Right? And that's part of the evolution. So if religion is the poison of the day, if that's what will sway the most amount of people in the nation that you are trying to adopt fascism in, then of course you adopt that language, you adopt that ideology. Netanyahu isn't even all that religious. We know that. He's pretty much an atheist or has been you know, framed as such earlier on in his political career. But he adopts this language because it's going to work. Not only will it give you the moral superiority, it will sway people who are already drinking that Kool-Aid. They are already buying into that so why not just saddle up to it and so the united states that populism also that we're seeing here the anti-migrant scapegoating and the narratives that go around that are catering to the emotional needs of the moment which are economic devastation because that's another absolute need for fascism is an exploited populace there needs to be a populace that is looking for a way out. They need to be riled up like that base needs to be angry and then pointed in a direction that is not up but down. And so whoever the easiest targets are at the moment that people are already kind of targeting are just then amplified by leaders. It's kind of like this organic relationship that they use what's already on the ground and then it's top down as well. I want to maybe take an opportunity to offer a potential definition for what fascism often looks like. And I would use the, I would say it's opportunistic authoritarianism. Yeah. Is what it seizes whatever is, it seizes whatever is happening at the extremes of the Overton window 
and seeks to push the Overton window further right, is how I would say. But it operates within that Overton window as much as possible. As much as possible within what is acceptable within society, and then seeks then to change it. And that's why you see these moral arguments being used, right? So many of the arguments that are dominating right-wing ideology right now are moral arguments, right? And and, and it's, it's bringing back all kinds of things. Like, we're seeing misogyny on the rise. And that misogyny is on the rise through moral arguments. That's why... Figures like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro are so large. That's how they center their arguments. They're appealing to that. And it's what makes it so difficult to argue against for people who have embraced it. Because it's absolute. These principles are absolute. And when it's linked to a higher power, such as you know a god of whatever flavor... There's no logical argument that overrules the absolute power of the universe. Which is why fascism has such a strong grip when it takes hold. And it's very, very difficult to defeat. And it's applicable to all religions because all religions can be manipulated for, for this use. I often bring up the famous example of the of how Buddhism was warped in imperialist Japan to be compatible with imperialist Japan, right? The whole idea of Zen murder, of disconnect from your body to be able to to murder others was a, a, a corruption of Buddhism. And Buddhism, we typically associate with being one of the more peaceful, spiritual, religious beliefs. But that's to say that all beliefs are can lend themselves to this if manipulated by the proper authoritarian figure. And anyway, let, let's talk about Canada for a second, because fascism is often associated with dictators. And that's true a lot of the time, but I would say not all of the time. I'd say, like what I said earlier about the opportunistic nature of it, if the opportunity presents itself to have a dictator, it will have a dictator, but it doesn't need one. But I think then you're stretching the definition. I I think a charismatic point person is one of the essential factors for fascism. And although they may not fit like the dictator profile that history has, I think it's the same with fascism as they can take many forms. Because if you even look at the way the Canadian parliament is structured in a majority government in particular, I know we don't have that federally, but the prime minister or the premier in a majority government province can act as a dictator. The way that our checks and balances are and the way that the Senate is appointed and whatnot and the way that the decisions come strictly from the cabinet, who is essentially then ruled by the prime minister, you know, they're not dictators, but they can play that role. I would say, though, that in many ways, dictators are just bad at being fascists in a way. Like, I would say that fascist dictatorships are so inherently unstable that it's 
they've bitten off more than they can chew and often they will eventually be overthrown. I mean, what fascist dictatorship has actually provided stability but for that's, fascism? That is my point, though. You know, even though they've it goes back to our earlier point, how liberals are just much better at it. It doesn't mean they're not. It doesn't mean he's not ruling with an iron fist in what one person says goes and everyone will enforce that and that becomes the norm. It just means he won't absorb that label. He never will. And if you use it, you'll look silly. But operationally, it ends up with this, a very similar result, right? Uh, obviously, once you take it too far, Thankfully, all fascist regimes fall. Yeah, yeah. Fascism is really bad at existing long term because in the, in the words of Charlie Chaplin, like as long as dictators die, you know, liberty will always be possible or something along those lines. I think. Right. The, yeah. Yeah. I think when you're talking about the definition that you had and you talked about authoritarianism and and what it does, I think that's more to how it gains power. So it's definitely part of what you look for, how you define it, and how it gets there. But the reason that they fall is more to do with the purpose of fascism. And I think sometimes we look at fascism and how we've been taught, and it looks like just death and destruction. Like, we can't really understand it because it's been framed in the sense of the Holocaust or other, like, atrocities that really just don't make sense right, from a hum human perspective. And so until it is obscene as that, we don't feel comfortable giving it a label. But, but its purpose isn't necessarily death and destruction like that, right? Even if you're looking at the Zionist regime and what they are doing right now to Gaza, although it looks like it's to ethnically cleanse, like, some sort of biblical revenge or whatnot, it has nothing really to do with that. It's about industry, capital, and wealth. And in a fascist regime, that is completely unchecked. And so the masses that you got worked up and had punching down soon realize when you take all of that from them, when it gets worse for them, because it will under fascist regime, regimes, right? A very small circle will benefit like it does in hyper-capitalism. And so that is untenable. And the populace quickly realize their mistake and often turn the other way, which is why anti-communism is such a huge tenet of fascism, right? Because it is the alternative to it. It's also what people will turn to when, when it falls, it's what will organize people to stop it. And if you're looking from the Canadian perspective and the way that we've become focused on anti-communist monument and we'll talk about education, that's really not, that's, that's based in propping up capitalism, right? And inherently that is what fascism is for. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Sorry, I'm thinking of what I want to say next because there's so much to say. Well, let's get into the anti-communist fervor that exists in Canada 
because I think it is evidence of the rise of fascism. You can't judge fascism alone just on electoral success either. It's the ideas behind it, right? That's important, right? Those have to take hold. Those have to be widespread because once they are, the electoral successes will come quick, fast and furious, and we won't be able to stop them. There'll be majority and it'll be lost. And so we're seeing real efforts to lay the groundwork for that ideology. And I think a lot of it is not only based in like propping up fascism around the world and, and adopting some of their tactics to a degree. I think Canadians do it quite well in, in rooting it in anti-communism. Right. That's where their battleground seems to lie. And so, you know, we see the monument being built. And one of the big reasons that, you know, this thing started getting funding in 2013. So we've had liberals and conservatives just determined to build this thing for 10 years. And the reason it's fallen so flat kind of bolsters my argument. It's because it wasn't really an anti-communist monument. We were finding out that people were using it to boost fascism, to wash it. The same way we applauded the Nazi in the House of Commons wasn't because it was a Nazi, not so much even propping about propping up Ukraine, right, or celebrating Ukrainian resistance. That it was based in anti-Russian sentiment and building that up. And so that's what this monument is. That's what Lecce's curriculum changes are for. It's a real Cold War tactic to seize an enemy, right? And that enemy being communist in general. And it's interesting um, because that that use of, you know, Russia, the Soviet Union as the center for opposing, like for providing a definition of communism to oppose, I think is it's very intentional in trying to discredit what's what are the movements that are actually a concern to those in power, right? I would argue that the Soviet Union was one, a very poor example of communism. I would argue that it was very authoritarian. And I would argue that that is the reason why they're rooting everything in the Soviet Union. Because... <laughs> the real threat that they're concerned about in Canada today, the threat to Canadian values that they're worried about, the reason that they're talking about this, is not because a Soviet-style communism is on the rise. That's not what they're concerned about. It's not. They're concerned more with you know the actual people organizing for change who are not really particularly rooted in that at all. It's not very authoritarian at all. And that is the reason why they always must bring it back to something that is unpopular. And it's unpopular for a reason. And we also have to not fall into the trap of then trying to defend something that doesn't align with our values. I don't feel a kinship to authoritarian regimes of any color. I feel a kinship to people who struggle against authoritarianism wherever they might be in the world. That is who I have a kinship with. Those are the people who are my comrades. And that is vastly more popular. And 
That is what they're worried about because they're seeing, well, we've kind of pushed things pretty far. Every single social service, every single essential good and service, sorry, is in disarray. They're seeing that, well, people can't afford their food and people can't afford their rent. And inevitably, that it's not quite stable. That's not stable at all. People can only take so much before they rise up and overthrow in whatever form overthrowing might look like. And they are, right? We're seeing those workers organize and unionize and tenants organize and unionize at alarming rates, especially if you're a capitalist. So so this this is a very preventative move, what they're doing here. They know that we can only take so much before our movements really start to grow at a rate that will actually present to because I, I would say right now we're a threat but we're not we're not winning the ultimate battle anytime soon but they're concerned that we might get there because they fucked up society so much so they're prevent preemptively starting to increase the propaganda against anything resembling socialism because they know that that is the response And it will be. Yeah. I think it's kind of ironic that the anti-communist narrative that will be taught in Ontario schools, it's really easy to come back at folks who object to this and say, oh, you know, you don't want history being taught. The man-made famine that killed Ukrainians, you know, do you want to just hide that from history? And of course not. Right. But I think it's just so ironic they're using famine as an example of deaths caused by communism and not by war, particularly when we're watching Israel starve out 1.2 million Gazans at this point. And so we know that it's not communism alone that's caused famines worldwide. In fact, I would say capitalism not I would say, I'm sure most people could acknowledge that capitalism has actually caused far more famines intentionally. Shit, mo- look at our bread lines. We always use the bread lines in, in the USSR as examples of why you don't want communism or the rationing that happens in Cuba. Yet we have food banks giving out expired food. You don't even get what you need from these food banks. You aren't getting staples even. You're getting people's castaways. That exists in our capitalist society. And I imagine when you try to teach youth from this lack of nuanced position that Lecce's taken, that communism is bad because it caused a famine, that the youth are going to look at this and be like, are you serious? Like, is this the only famine? Like, you just can't teach kids this way anymore. So I don't think it's going to stick in the way that they want because absolutely, the, the resources are out there to understand that, that that is a tool of oppression, regardless of who wields it. It's not a communist tenant to starve people, right? It happened. It's awful. It shouldn't have ever. But yeah, it's it's like if you don't have anything to actually tear it down from, then you do something ridiculous like that. And I think that's why they really latched on to Fred Hahn and his position on Palestine, because it was a real opportunity to just kind of bring down union leaders, right, to frame them as extremists and dangerous. And there was a lot of people who took his same position, right, but they weren't kind of 
the, the, the hype against them wasn't amplified in the way it was there because it wasn't just a blow for Zionism and the occupation, but it was a way to, to tear down commies as well. It's, it's a reason why they have to go so far back in history to find things to complain about, right? That's why they use... Why, why are we talking about the Soviet Union and not Bolivia? Bolivia. Why not talk about Bolivia in your anti-communist propaganda? Maybe it's because under a socialist government, Bolivia saw extreme poverty reduced by half and poverty reduced by half. I think it was something like poverty went from 60% to 30% and extreme poverty went from like 30% to like 10%, something like that. Some ridiculous numbers under Evo Morales. And then we had a hand in overthrowing that government. Why? Hmm. Ask yourself that. Why would we install a fascist puppet dictator in Bolivia when that government was so successful in reducing misery for their people, in providing the indigenous people a voice, in representing the workers? We have much more contemporary examples that we can base ourselves off. Because like I said, ideologies evolve. And there are many, many, many success stories in Latin America of how socialists have won real victories for the people, real victories for workers. And it's typically only interventions by other state powers that allow fascist, I can't say that word anymore, to allow these authoritarian regimes to succeed after, you know, the populace has installed. And, you know, see, in Brazil is the best example of the tactics that need to be used to remove Lula from the first place, install Bolsonaro, and then, you know, when I think then that pressure was just too much worldwide, globally, that was just one of those two obvious moments that the liberals stepped in and we see a reversal there, uh, but not short of any efforts from Western nations trying to, you know, overdo that knowledge that people gain when they experience fascism and don't want it to repeat itself. I don't think it's so much, especially in South America, that it is that folks have this like short term memory. It's so much mass global intervention in these in these moments where populists gain power and then it's taken away from them. We've come so normalized to that, that we don't see it as fascism at all, you know, as being hand in hand with it. It's just bringing stability and all this other nonsense, economic stability and whatnot. And uh, we totally buy into that. But there's a lot more modern ways to define fascism as well. You know, one of the telltale signs that you can see easily in North America is the disdain for democracy, and its institutions, its procedures. I mean, it starts as mundane as red tape, right? You hear that on the municipal level. You can really get that out. Nobody bats an eye. It's it's safeguards, usually, that they're talking about. There is bad red tape. I, you know, some municipalities are freaking awful. But that's really not what... That's where it starts. And, like, Premier Ford... He openly talks about his disdain for the courts, for judges, and we then see it in his legislation that a lot of people don't pay attention to, you know, where he has lessened their power. He's lessened the ability for you to use the courts to challenge him or to hold him accountable. And that is part of the tenets of fascism, right? Not only an open disdain for these institutions, but dismantling them, weakening them. Right to allow for a more authoritarian regime to exist within something that still resembles democracy, 
right? Because we don't have time to really pay attention to how the courts actually work. And, and that's what I mean when I say fascism has been here for a while. It's not new. We, how long have we been talking? I mean, as long as this show's been going on, we've been talking about how we don't live in a democracy. Nothing even close to resembling a democracy. But it calls itself one. It dresses up like one, right? It likes to pretend that it is, so we don't see it. But we're not in a democratic society. Our system is the farthest thing possible. We know the ways that the parties control who's even allowed to get their name on a ballot. We see how they control um, how, how, how little public will in elections actually influences policy. How you can say whatever the fuck you want, but if there is private interest, that overrules everything. I mean, look at, look, look at like what's going on right now. Look at what happened with the green belt. Look what ha is happening right now with Ontario Place, right? Is this public will? No. But it, it, legislation is being introduced to overrule any sort of democratic check that could possibly hold them accountable. Whatever systems we've had that we hold on to as evidence of a, of a democratic system, all of it is eroded so quickly through a legislative vote uh, from a party that is operating without a without the approval of the majority of the people. Environmental checks? Forget about it. We don't need that. We can just introduce legislation against it. Right? So my point, and, and, and that's a very tame example, I would say. Like, it's just what's on the top of my mind because it's happening right now before our eyes. But it's, it's with everything. It's with absolutely everything. And so I guess the question... I have now is like because I want to focus on on what we can control because we can't control everything. These fights have to take place all around the world, and you know that's it's going to take a lot of us. But what can we do here in Canada? What's happening here at home, and what should we be doing against this? Because it's on us, right? It's on us to do something about it. So what do we have to do and what are the battles that need fighting, I guess, is my question. Well, I think part of it goes back to the question you had for me before we started recording, which we should always record. But it was in response to the police violence that we saw in Toronto earlier this week. And a protester knocked to the ground, punched repeatedly, need a knee from a police officer just like ground this guy's face, this person's face into the ground over and over again. Uh, this was from a pro-Palestinian rally. And either way, that's what the discussion was. Santiago wanted to know, I don't know if you're going to like me, why we don't fight back more against police officers. And I know some people are going to be like, because they'll shoot you. I get it. Like, I, I understand your knee-jerk reaction to that. But, you know, the person who was beat by police, the reasoning is they retaliated when the police knocked a woman off of their bike or knocked them over, you know, unprovoked. And they fought back. And Santiago is just like, why don't we do that more? Why do we allow them to evict our neighbors? Why do we allow them to push our lines back the way that we do? And I guess a lot of things can feed into that. And I think maybe that's like another episode kind of question that part of it. But I think part of the answer of why 
the right has done such a good job of mobilizing folks and why fascism takes hold. I kind of go back to this interview with Chris Hedges and Jeff Shartlett. And they're talking about how Trump and other heads and other fascists normalize violence in protests from police, but sometimes just like in their language, like that locker room shit that a lot of people chalk it down to, you know, and I'd beat that guy up, throw him out of here, you know, make that guy pay for disrupting my rally. You know, if I met that guy on the street and what that does, it, it appeals to a certain part of our emotions, right? Like a real deep, powerful, passionate, even though we're talking about violence, it's still a real passionate trigger for people, especially when you're really struggling, especially when people have you riled up looking for scapegoats and stuff like that. And what the right has done is they have sparked that and they've pointed it at migrants, they've pointed it at trans people, they've pointed it at us, you know, the left in general. Uh, And it's not that we should adopt violence as a mantra, but in terms of fighting, sometimes we even lack that language. Like people aren't willing to use class war, right? Our leaders aren't willing to declare class war or resisting police in that way, right? Fighting. It's always framed as defending ourselves, defending our human rights and securing that as opposed to going on the offensive. And that doesn't spark the same kind of push, fervor, passion in people. And so in a time where, especially after COVID hit us at a time where you could already argue we were in end stage capitalism, that hit us in this awful moment. And the right captured that. They captured that anger. Quite often it was pointed into violence. And unfortunately, that really did appeal to people because they knew they were in a time where you needed to fight, fight or flight, and fleeing isn't an option. And we didn't point them into a fight. The left, I mean, you know, especially our leaders who we look to, they they tried to appear like liberals, really passive, really just um, in a real gentle way. And that isn't doing us any good. And I'm going to get labeled a tanky. That's a favorite term folks like to throw at me online. I'm never happy, you know, because of this, like all I want is revolution. And that's true. I'm sorry. That is true because this piecemeal shit that we're getting is garbage and it's going to end in fascism. And so absolutely, you have to push for the extreme opposite of that and hold to it, right? Or folks will will water it down. But, you know, the left has just been afraid to really get people fired up in that way. Not the entire left, because I think the Palestinian youth movement is a great example of people absolutely unapologetic in their language, like their use of the term, certain terms that they use within their campaign are of war and resistance. And because that's what it is, right? So meanwhile, you know, the NDP is supposed, we're we're supposed to be getting excited about means-tested dental care when the right is offering really transformative 
visions to people. They're awful. It's like a world without migrants or something. You know, I don't know what their vision is, but it's really different than what we have. Right. And and that's that's not anything that we've provided. And I, I think what concerns me is that I have no doubts in my mind that we will get to the stage where we will be resisting much more aggressively than we are today. No doubt in my mind that that will come because, like we said, like fascism is inherently quite unstable and the people will always for rise up against it eventually. My concern is how far do we let it get before we do that? How long are we willing to wait? How many rights are we willing to let be stripped away? How strong are we willing to let fascism grow before we say enough is enough? And, and, and that's the danger of, of liberalism, is that liberalism dulls the senses. It dulls the mind. It gets you into this very like, oh, well, you know, we must piece by piece, slowly, you know, ask nicely for change and hope that it comes. And that lends itself so much to the growth of authoritarianism and fascism. And so, like, just to be clear, like, I'm not, I'm not calling, like, we need to be, con like, we cannot, my values are rooted in anti-authoritarianism. And so any resistance must be anti-authoritarian. That is foundational to my belief system. So the question of what we do I don't know. I don't fully like I think that like there's a lot of good work going on right now. Um I think what I what I, I think my concern isn't so much tactics right now. It's how many people are actually getting involved and are actually aware of this and actually talking about this and identifying it for what it is. I don't think we're aware of the threat. I don't think we're aware of how bad it is and how bad it's going to get. I think people are very hopeless right now, and that was intentional. Our hope, taking away our hope is a very intentional thing, and I am as guilty as anybody else of those falling into despair quite often. I think, yeah, I think that that is very, very intentional. And so I think building hope, building our communities bringing us closer together. I mean, these are the things we always talk about, but that is exactly what we need. You know, <laughs> I just thought of like a, a, a stupid line, but like it's, it's from the hunger games, but you know, uh, <laughs> where snow said something along the lines of, um, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. Right. And I, 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 you know, Hunger Games comes in handy sometimes, I think. And I think that was one of the things that I think really does come in handy. But, like, we live in a society that's trying to push us apart. We need to come together, you know? I think I think part of the answer, part of the hope, unfortunately, lies within the despair. What I mean is when you see these fascist regimes masks falling away, when it becomes easier to have and make the argument that fascism is rising around us. It means they are losing grip. 
and they're worried. And they're only ever going to be worried when they see resistance. Otherwise, they're in cruise control. But that is not what we are seeing right now. And it's because of the organizing that is happening worldwide and the resistance that is happening to climate change, to genocide, to capitalism. And that is why you're you're seeing this response. So although, you know, it always has to get worse before it gets better, that is a sign that the things that are happening on the ground are worrying the people at the top. But I think we've normalized what fascism looks like or doesn't look like for too long that we don't recognize a lot of the regimes that exist in Europe, in South America as fascist because we're not living it. We only know really what we see, which is why, you know, the ins and outs of what's happening in Germany and Poland and Hungary or the political unrest even in France and the rise of the far right throughout Europe, you know, they're sometimes hidden within coalitions, but still evidence that the ideology as a whole is, you know, really gaining traction. And when they start scoring these electoral victories, like in Argentina and whatnot, then that is the point where you have to stop going, you know, is it coming? It that it's evidence that it is very much present in people's lives. Like even by the textbook definition of it, people are are experiencing that right now around the world. And we are not that far behind. No, no, it's, we're not even far behind. We're just in a very um, smart, evolved version of it. A very, a version of it that's just so good at at pretending to be something it's not, you know, at, at having that illusion of choice, that illusion of control, that illusion of democracy. It's like not just that, but that the image of the tolerant left, too, I think is not a good one. You know, the way that some people feel the need to distance themselves from Antifa and what what the implications are and worrying about image and whatnot. There's just so much of that playing in here, especially in North America. And perception is such a huge, big part of that. I think we need to let go of that, that, that there's no space for hate. There is. Like, this is war. And I'm not, this isn't a call to arms, because, like, again, this is just the language that we're using. But... You have to be in that mindset. You know, this real this makes me kind of realize how sanitized our movement has become over the last few years, you know? Like, it wasn't long ago that ACAB was a much louder slogan than it is now. You know, that defund the police was a louder slogan. Now we have Olivia Chow as mayor in Toronto. And when was the last time you heard someone talk about defunding the police? Because I don't hear it. And as long as the police are being careful about their brutality and are not... Because I think they've gotten more careful about it. I think that they they recognize the very real threat to, to their institution that this movement posed. So I think they have gotten more careful. I think they're more hesitant. It's the reason why encampment evictions don't have a line of cops today. They have private security overseeing... And they bring out the claw in the night, but they don't have the line of cops anymore. 
And I think that's intentional because they've gotten, they were afraid of the movement. But now that they've gotten so good at that, where are the calls to defund the police? Because that was not to do just with like recent examples of police. Police brutality is not the reason to defund the police alone. It's, It's about the monopoly of state violence. It's about how that threat is ever-present. Because if we ever push too far, that's what we get. That's what we will be met with. And how those resources are better gone to actual services for the community. But we seem to have forgotten that. Our person, our person, quote-unquote, won. And now, do we actually do it? Do we actually defund the police? No, that's not what's happening. No one's talking about that. And this is true, not just in that movement, but in all of our movements. I feel like we've become sanitized. We've become so careful with image that we have taken out the radical nature that we need to actually be effective in bringing about change. Because let me ask you, what change have we actually won in the last few years? Nothing. Nothing. And we were a lot, we were a lot closer a few years ago than we are today. Because... And, and, and the people in power have become a lot better at taking the fuel out of our fire. Meanwhile, on the right, you watch them nurture those extremists, right? Whereas on the left, we are isolated. I would call myself the extreme left. Lord knows other people do, right? And But they're not ostracized in the same way. They're given platforms. They're celebrated. Sometimes a little bit distance. Oh, I did. I take a photo. Oh, I didn't know who they were, but you took the photo. It made its rounds on social media. The dog whistle was was sounded. And those personalities and those ideas, those radical ideas, like the idea of outing trans kids to their parents, that is a radical idea. That's an extremist viewpoint. That is open business. Right. But talking about revolution, talking about more far left ideas is purposely curtailed, silenced in environments like conventions or where it could get some air and debate. The House of Commons, you know, and so it's it's like we've taken everything the right is doing politically and try to apply the opposite to it as a reaction, as though we would just be so obviously the other guys. And it the other guys were just nothing to inspire, right? They, they were a non-entity for people who were absolutely struggling. Folks are abandoning those political choices quite quickly. I think the, the, the linguistics behind this all is really important, and it goes kind of on scene but the words that we use are so so powerful subconsciously and we need to like when 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 we use the word extremist right well extremist relates to fanaticism right and fanaticism is ignorant right fanaticism by definition is you know like this excessive like by it's excessive single-minded zeal right but radical Radical is about 
the fun affecting the fundamental nature of something about thorough and complete political and societal change. That's what we're advocating for. So when they call us extremists, I'm not extremism. We're not. We're radicals is what we are. And we need to embrace being radicals. And there's a reason why these words are used. Even if we're not thinking of the definitions, there's so many ways that these things affect our subconscious, right? And I feel like that's what I'm trying to get at. It's just like that radical nature is gone. Not gone, but it's definitely been subdued. It's missing. We're not comfortable being radical in public. We're not comfortable owning up to being radical. And we are. We need to be radical. The time is right now to be radical. We need complete fundamental change. This system is deeply hateful, deeply flawed. Look at the state of our society. It's bad. And it's only going to get worse. Every trend right now is to our society getting worse and worse. How long do we have to wait to do something about it? Are we like, are, do we have to wait until we're so uncomfortable that we have no other choice to risk something? Because there are those of us here, we're risking something constantly. No, because it'll only get harder, even though times will get worse. That idea of fighting back in that will be so entrenched amongst activists that it will be impossible to flip that switch. So I think you've kind of answered your own question is where do we go? How do you fight fascism is you make as much room as possible for radical socialism or the like. I know labels sometimes cut people out and it's just a way of describing the alternative to top-down rule. It's worker-led, people-led, owning the means of production, controlling the places that they live, right? Like tenant organizations, workplace unions. Those obviously are the answer, but in radical forms, unapologetic forms. And we need to start making the people who speak this way our heroes, not in the way that we have a leadership cult, but that they can speak for us, that they have a platform where they use this language. And it's not just the radical elements amongst the left that are using this language and taking to the streets in this way. It's absolutely imperative that the leaders are doing it. That's why you see Jeremy Corbyn at rallies speaking like on marches, not just holding the banner when it's politically convenient, not just when you're marching for free health care or something really easy like that. When it really counts, when it's really uncomfortable, when the police are facing you down on the other side of the line. And yeah, I think that you really hit on that. That sanitized, controlled image needs to go across the spectrum because I think you're seeing a lot of people on the ground doing what you're talking about being radical and we will tell their stories we will make sure you hear about other people being radical because you will find courage in the incredible acts that are happening across the globe right now the acts of resistance so part of wanting and being able to fight is seeing a victory first too so that it, you don't think it's for naught. Like a lot of people are willing to make that sacrifice to risk their body, risk their job, risk their freedom 
in whatever sense that you see that. But they need to know it'll be worth something. So, and there I, are victories. We just don't hear enough about them. We just gotta I, I listen to, to our use, show more. <laughs> I need to use right now the example of Israel and Palestine to kind of show you what we're talking about because for a long time, many of us were talking about the conditions. We were talking about the oppression in, in Palestine from Israel. We were talking about Isra Israeli fascism. We have been talking about this for years and very little happened. It took a very public, active genocide for people en masse to rise up and oppose it. Do not let that be what it takes to do something. Do not wait that long. We cannot keep repeating the same mistakes. Like that, like, and, and we saw how, what were the narratives around those who spoke of Palestinian liberation? What were the narratives that they were faced with constantly? We saw exactly what it were, was. Oh, you're anti-Semitic. Oh, you're a, like, you know, you're an extremist. No, and now we know better. We do, and I think now it becomes more obvious why it had been so important to do by some, obviously not all, but to take that language of resistance, the right to resist, and fighting the right to return, you know, asking for what's owed and using the language of war and fighting and, and that right to resist. And when you placated that, when human rights advocates and amnesty always couched this in legal mechanisms and defending rights and using the UN and not of Palestinian resistance, it really opened up those attacks post-October 7th, where it hadn't been globally established that Palestinians can absolutely pick up a gun and try to resist this by any means possible because it's unjust and we think the Ukrainians have the right to do that. But that hadn't been fully established. It was safer to use the other language. But in hindsight, if that had been firm, if it had all been known in all of our heads that that was a legal right that they had, and in fact that would be the natural thing that one would do, instead of signing petitions and doing resisting in the ways that we think are acceptable, then that's when you saw so much, so many people fall silent. They didn't recognize that as a legitimate form of resistance because it had never been sold to them as such. It had always been framed as absolute evil. You know, and if you're ever going to study the likes of Che Guevara and understand how some revolutions happen, how some resistance movements happen, they are violent. You, you, you can't overthrow an imperialist regime with your words. So look at what happened at the, to the Black Panthers, right? Look what happens when you represent a real threat. That's right, because they will respond with absolute violence before you get the chance. So again, no one wants to get to that point. It's important that we see fascism in all its forms, in all its evolutions, and not be required to check off boxes of the fascists that have been used as an example. 
And I think being able to have these discussions and pointing out the obvious to people is one of the steps to allowing people to frame themselves as in a legitimate fight, not just a ballot box battle, you know, things that have really dire consequences and require radical action. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.